Coronavirus NZ, a stuff podcast. What are the chances, eh? You know, you yabber away on a New Zealand podcast about how a British star of the screen can't say the word penguin, safe in the knowledge that, you know, there's not a chance in hell he'll hear it. So, wait, you're talking about last week when we were laughing at a listener's urging, it must be said, at Benedict Cumberbatch saying penguin and pingwong and things like that. So you're saying... Yeah, 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 yeah. Guess what? Turns out he's in New Zealand at the moment. Wait, so are you telling me that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's staying in the Hawke's Bay. He's been here the entire lockdown. So what you mean is that... Yep. He... he was down here filming a Netflix movie, The Power of the Dog, and when filming was suspended, rather than return to the UK... He and his family stayed behind. And hang they... on, hang on. Are you saying he heard what we said about him? That he listened to the podcast? That's that's amazing. Oh no, I've got no idea about that. I just thought it was interesting. He was staying here in New Zealand. <sighs> anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Tuesday, the twenty sixth of May. I'm Adam Dudding, and I'm Eugene Bingham. Twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we bring you the main stories, some of the more unusual things, and then focus on one particular topic. So we moved down to two days a week thinking, you know, the news is slowing down a bit. It's getting harder to fill each episode. But you turn your back for five minutes and wow. So nationally, of course, Simon Bridges lost his job as leader of the opposition. Yeah, just like to clarify, there is no truth to the rumours that a judgment was called into question after agreeing to come on the Coronavirus NZ podcast. Hmm. Oh, and so abroad, we've had that whole schmozzle over the weekend in the UK where Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's senior advisor slash Lord of the Darkness, admitted that he had left London to drive to Durham during the lockdown while he and his wife were actively showing signs of coronavirus. Remarkable. Yeah, one of my favourite bits of that story, in a kind of a shaking your head, you cannot be serious way, is that he took a drive of 50 kilometres at one point to a castle, and he says that that was to test his eyesight out. What? I know. He said that his vision wasn't the best, and he wanted to see if he was up to driving back to London, so packed his wife and child in the car and drove to a nearby castle to see how his eyes were. Unbelievable. And then you've had the crisis growing and growing in the US as well, where the number of deaths is about to hit 100,000. The New York Times presented one of its most remarkable front pages in its long, venerable history when it listed the names of just 1,000 of the disease's victims, each with a tiny biographical note. A thousand isn't many in COVID death toll terms, but man, seeing it there as a block of text on one page is really quite powerful. It's, it's not just statistics, it's real people. And then you've had the Trump administration release its testing strategy, which pushes most of the hard work of tracking down supplies to individual states rather than having the federal government coordinate and act as a single buyer. So this guy, Scott Becker, from the US Association of Public Health Laboratories, isn't at all impressed by that strategy, which could lead to states destructively competing for limited resources. He said, you can't leave it up to the states to do it for themselves. This is not the Hunger Games. Mm, yeah, I don't think Scott Becker should have said that, mentioning the Hunger Games like that. You've got to wonder if Trump will see what he said and say, ha, great idea, we need to turn this into a reality TV series. Later on the show, remember that simpler time when we just worried about the catastrophic warming of the planet? Stuff's climate change editor Eloise Gibson explains what surprising impact global COVID-19 lockdowns have had on the planet Earth and what opportunities this might present. But first, here's what's happening. 
Another zero day today, and there are now only 22 active cases, which further backs up the move we're making down through the levels. The rules announced yesterday will see large gathering sizes relaxed from 10 to 100 on Friday, and Cabinet will make a decision on whether we're ready to move to level one no later than June 22nd. Some interesting numbers from Australia. Victoria today reported five new cases. Now, three of those were returned travellers in quarantine and one was in a rest home. But it's the other one that's particularly interesting. It was detected through community testing unrelated to any known outbreak. So you've got to wonder if we're quite ready yet to go into a trans-Tasman bubble. The government says it's putting $37 million into a COVID-19 vaccine strategy and will lobby internationally to make sure New Zealand and Pacific Islands get a fair share when it's developed. $15 million will go for a collaboration with international research, $10 million for research in New Zealand, and $5 million is to support potential manufacturing capacity. So I guess that means we might eventually be making some vaccine here. So in an announcement from the government on Monday, we learned that there are two classes of jobless people, those who've lost their jobs because of COVID-19 and the rest. Workers affected by COVID-19 cutbacks will receive more than double the usual unemployment benefit. Staff business journalist Susan Edmonds, a regular guest on the show, has been looking at the announcements and the anomalies. Thanks for joining us, Susan. No problem. First of all, can you set out the difference for us? What is the difference between the COVIDs and the COVID-nots? Well, it's, it's actually really different. And I've been looking at the benefit system for quite a while because people have been pointing out to me that various aspects of it don't work very well. And this new scheme basically gets rid of pretty much everything that people had complained about, about the existing one. So if you were made redundant last year and couldn't get another job, as a single person over 25, no kids and stuff, you'd get about $250 a week after tax not considering the accommodation supplement or anything else like that that you might get. But if you were made redundant now, you could get $490 if you're full-time for 12 weeks, and that's not taxed. And your partner can also earn up to $2,000 a week before tax, before it affects the payment at all. And that's been a big thing, that relationship test, because... um, Usually, if you're getting the benefit, you can only earn $90 combined with your partner before it starts to, the benefit starts to abate. And people have said that's really unfair because most households now can't survive on just one income. So it's unfair that we're testing. Well, when we, when we gauge whether you uh, qualify for a benefit, we look at you as a unit when most people are in, earning individually. So that's a huge difference. How has the government rationalised it? Well, it said this is a you know a one in a hundred years global economic shock, and there are a lot of people, I guess, being made redundant at the moment, more so than other times. And maybe they they just need that twelve weeks to to keep them afloat and get them back into the workforce. I mean, I know people made redundant, and I have worried sometimes that it was going to be me in the past couple of weeks. But that doesn't necessarily. I just don't think it justifies this redundant because of COVID and redundant for other reasons. They've also said they don't want large numbers of people defaulting on their mortgages because I suppose that's a problem for the banks. But I don't know. If you if we can't expect that we can keep households afloat on the former or the normal rate of the benefit, doesn't that indicate that there's a, a more significant problem there? Yeah, and you're not alone in that, are you? You've, the piece you wrote this morning highlighted lots of people worried about this issue and saying, hey, we've been drawing attention to this problem for years, the inadequacies and the injustice of the benefit system. 
Yeah, for years I've had people get in touch with me, like the Child Poverty Action Group. They're particularly upset about that in-work tax credit that's part of working for families because you can get it with this new payment, but you can't get it if you're on the old benefit or the normal benefit, I should say. And that's it. That's $72 a week, I think, starts off. And that would make a difference to people with kids. And it's just there seems to be so much, I don't know, there's a lot of a lot of people really upset about this. Yeah, it seems a pretty big call from a, a Labour-led government specifically, so uh, who you might expect to be more sympathetic to beneficiaries on, on balance. So do you think it smacks of, oh, middle-class people who've lost their jobs just need more looking after than people who have always been poor? <laughs> yes, we can't let middle-class people find out what it's like to be poor. I don't know, I've had a few people say to me, this is middle-class welfare because the government's worried about losing that middle-class vote. I know that the Greens are still pushing hard for benefits to increase. It seems so un- unfair and, oh, and so many people are now just realising how awful and punitive the welfare system can be and saying, oh, we can't cope with this. And the government seems to have rode to the res- ridden to the rescue for them. And, you know. Look, look, we've already seen reports that the, the new COVID-related applications for unemployment benefits have, on average, been younger, richer and whiter than your regular beneficiary cohort. So there are some quite uncomfortable issues here around race and privilege as well, aren't there? I think so. It's exacerbating some issues that might have been there already. And, you know, it's putting a safety net under people, but only some people. Do you think it might trigger a change, make the government rethink the whole benefit system, which is what some people have been calling for for years? Well, I did see yesterday Jacinda Ardern said that this is the third time that the government's had to come up with something like this. The first one was the GFC, then there was the Christchurch earthquake, and now there's this. And she said, Something like maybe that indicates we need a wider change, and I know that they that the benefit relationship test is something that's on their long term work agenda, but I would hope that it brings these things up to you know to the fore a bit more because I do think that that relationship test is really outdated. Thank you very much for joining us, Susan Edmonds. No problem. So you know how we sometimes call up a staff reporter and get them to explain a story they've just done? Well, at the weekend, I read a piece that told the surprisingly dramatic story of how New Zealand's laboratory testing systems stepped up to the challenge of COVID-19. And when I looked at the byline, it turned out it was written by none other than Eugene Bingham. Hmm. Clearly, with only two podcast episodes to bash out each week rather than five, he's had a bit of time on his hands. So... Now we're going to interview the author of this really quite good piece. Uh, we always toss a coin to see who asks the questions in these little interviews. And today, the man to get the heads was Eugene Bingham. So take it away, Eugene. Thanks, Adam. So, Eugene, in your piece, you say the testing system came close to collapse. How close? It's a good question, Eugene. Uh, right, so it turns out that just before lockdown, and I didn't really comprehend this, the system was, as people I spoke to told me, in crisis. And these were scientists who don't really throw around that word lightly. People like Josh Freeman, who's the clinical director of microbiology and virology at Canterbury District Health Board. And what had happened was basically the supplies that we use for testing were suddenly drying up. And at one point when we had a capacity to test 1,800 people a day, there were only the materials for 4,600 tests in the country. Now, I'm no mathematician, but that is not a good position to be in. And basically what had happened is that, oh, no, I've jumped to my next question. Sorry. Yes, thank you, Eugene. So, Eugene, we had pandemic plans in place. So why did we almost run out of supplies? Good question, Eugene. So 
what had happened is that the pandemic plan that we had was uh, based on influenza, which we heard about before. And as uh, Josh Freeman explained to me, it wasn't until the WHO report from China came out and people you know, realised the significance really of testing that normally under an influenza pandemic, you sort of do testing for a while, contact tracing for a while, then you kind of flag it away and just get on with it. But what the WHO report made clear was, no, 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 you're going to have to keep testing. You're going to have to keep contact tracing to try and stamp this thing out. So suddenly testing became really, really important. And we had supplies just drying up. You know, for instance, the little swabs, they come from Northern Italy. Now, Northern Italy, of course, was at the epicenter of the European outbreak. And suddenly they were being told, we can't guarantee when we're going to get you these supplies to New Zealand. So it caused a hell of a crunch on our whole testing system. Next question. So, Adam, I can't do this. Can you ask the next one? Okay. So along the way, Eugene, is it the case that you discovered a veritable army of people who saved the day? As a matter of fact, Adam, I did. So what was obvious too was that there... (laughs) This is so silly. Anyway, what, you know, we kind of lord rightly, you know, people in senior leadership positions who have managed this crisis. But what became clear was that there were a lot of people you know, much further down the food chain, as it were, who really stepped up. Uh, And I spoke to some remarkable people, people like Kevin Taylor, who is at Canterbury District Health Board, and he's in charge of procurement, really. He calls himself General Dog's Body, but he's somebody who just gets things done. And he was an example of someone who just rolled up their sleeves and made sure that we were going to get through this crisis by finding supplies by hook or by crook. There were a whole lot of other people, of course. And then there was the testing side of it. So we had, you know, people who volunteered really, they were staff, but they they put their hand up to go and work at these community testing sites. And I spoke to Dr. Christine McIntosh, who was at the Takanini site, and she talked about those early days about how people who had said, yep, I'll come and work there, they were terrified. They were scared. They didn't know what was coming. And she said it felt to them at that point like this is a disaster response. We're having to roll up our sleeves and just who knows what's going to come at us. Um, It felt like a bit of a Hollywood disaster movie. But if you like Hollywood disaster movies, you know that it's the threat is only part of the story. What makes it really captivating is what happens afterwards and the heroes who step up. And I really came away from that story realising that there were a hell of a lot of unsung heroes in our country who had stepped up and done a remarkable, remarkable job. It was a very good story. Thank you, Eugene. Thanks, Adam. Can I come back on the podcast again? Whenever you like. Oh, thanks. Just before we move on, Adam, I just want to say a thank you to Lorna Gribble, who is a Coronavirus NZ podcast listener, who said, hey, I'd like to hear a bit more about the lab testing and the staff who worked on that side of it. And that's what started the idea for me. So thanks, Lorna. Interesting article in the latest issue of Scientific American. It's a backgrounder about a woman called Shi Jingli. She's a Chinese virologist who got into studying bats and bat coronaviruses after the 2002 SARS outbreak. So there's all kinds of great detail in this piece about her tromping in caves full of bat poo looking for diseases and and proving that the SARS coronavirus must have come from bats. But there's a really interesting bit which directly relates to some of the rumours about COVID-19 having come from one of the virus research labs in, in Wuhan, because it is a, one of those places that Xi Jingli worked. 
And so there's this bit where she talks about her horror at learning about this new disease, you know, this is in December, January, about this new disease coming out of Wuhan. And when it's looking like it might be a coronavirus, um, the piece says that she remembers thinking, if coronaviruses were the culprit, could they have come from our lab? So I, I just thought this was really interesting, because the point here is that really early on, Chinese scientists were considering this as a real possibility. So in this case, they immediately went and compared the new bug to all the old bugs at Xi's lab and concluded that the viruses simply did not match any of the bat viruses that she'd been collecting from those bat caves for years. So in the piece, she says, that really took a load off my mind. I had not slept a wink for days. Which seems fair enough, really. Imagine being the klutz who'd gone looking for germs in a cave to save the world from contagion, then gone and started a pandemic by accident instead. Just a quick one. Have you seen the video of the Thai elephant migration? No. Uh, actually, was it a, was that a rhetorical question? Well, it was, but you know, why am I bringing this up in a coronavirus podcast, you may ask, which means you don't have to, Adam. Well, the collapse of the tourism industry in Thailand means captive elephants are at risk of starvation. So the keepers there are having to lead the animals out of the tourist spots back into the countryside where there's food for them. The BBC Thailand crew who captured it on film called it the biggest migration of elephants in Thailand's history. I'll have to confess, I don't know what the second biggest one is, but the footage of these elephants on the move is impressive. I will take a look. All right. Email inbox? Yes, we've got an email from Denmark. It's from a New Zealander, Miriam Cullen, who is an associate professor at the University of Copenhagen at the moment. Lovely. Well, she's got a complaint, actually, Adam. Oh, what have we done? Uh, Well, it's quite a lovely complaint, really. She says she's disappointed we're down to twice a week because she enjoys the podcast as a lighthearted way to keep up with news in New Zealand. Nice. And sorry about that. Mm. Anyway, now that the chiding is over, Miriam has a question that she wonders if anyone knows the answer to. Miriam and her husband are considering bringing their family home to visit Wellington at the end of the year, so long as that's possible, you know, with flights and stuff. And her question revolves around her kids and quarantine. She's got a four-month-old and a two-year-old. The baby, she says, will be fine. But she writes, I can't fathom how we'll cope being stuck in a hotel room with a two-year-old for two weeks. Are there possibilities to take them outside to play somewhere within the confines of quarantine? How are other families with small kids managing their quarantine experience? So, good question. Does anyone know? Drop us a line, viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Right, plague playlist. A reader contribution. Brian Waters contacted us the other day to say he'd been really enjoying your podcast over lockdown. Thank you, Brian. And as a bit of a bonus, he included a video made by a friend of his, Andy Gillett of Whangarei singing a coronavirus-themed song. Oh, I've been stuck at home for weeks. Oh, have you seen the empty streets? Oh, they don't let people roam about. Coronavirus, we've got to stamp you out. Yeah, COVID-19, we've got to stamp you out. You know, last week we were talking about the differences between the movie Contagion and the reality of COVID-19. And it may be that the biggest oversight in the Hollywood version is the total absence of pandemic-related comedy songs. I guess when you're in the scripting room for a disaster movie, you just don't realise that the third thing people do in a pandemic, after buying loo paper and after subscribing to a streaming video service, is sit down, grab a guitar and start writing songs about it. Then it's I see you for you. This is not some common flu. A ventilator now keeping you alive. 
hey, I've got something coming up that I haven't done for a month. Tomorrow, or maybe the day after, I'm going to have to refill my car's petrol tank. I last did that on March 29th, I think it was, a, a couple of days into lockdown. Can I, Adam, can I just stop you? You know that March 29th was more than a month ago, right? Yikes. Okay, something I haven't done for two months. Two months! One tank. Anyway, the point is, I'm returning ever so slowly to my old habit of burning petrol and warming the atmosphere, simply because I want to get from A to B, and then back to A, and then off to C, and then B, and... That's the picture all over the planet. You, Adam, are a microcosm of the world's woes. Someone who has a real handle on how COVID-19 has overlapped with the issue of climate change is Stuff's climate change editor, Eloise Gibson, recently crowned Science Reporter of the Year for the second year running. Eloise, hey, congratulations. Thank you. It was a uh, slightly more subdued awards ceremony this year, wasn't it? It was a Zoom-based ceremony, like so many things in our world today. But thank you, I was chuffed anyway. A lesser impact on the climate and Fewer hangovers the next day, I suspect, as well. Indeed. So I guess the world slowed down because of COVID-19. What has that meant for carbon emissions and climate change? So globally speaking, daily CO2 emissions are decreased by about 17% on average. So during that kind of peak lockdown time when a lot of people around the world were confined to their homes... Researchers have now gone back and reconstructed what that meant for emissions. And it was a pretty serious drop. It wasn't 80, 90%, but certainly the climate will notice it. What about New Zealand? Did New Zealand have a big drop? So New Zealand had an almost world-leading drop. Uh, so our emissions at the peak peak of their drop, if you like, were down 41%. And that was the second largest change in the world after Luxembourg. One factor is that the authors of the study only looked at carbon dioxide. So they looked at, you know, factories, they looked at traffic on the roads, they looked at, you know, heavy industry and transport, all of which produce massive amounts of carbon dioxide. But of course, in New Zealand, at least as we currently measure it, our farming emissions are about half of our profile. So that's methane and nitrous oxide, not carbon dioxide. And that wasn't counted in the study. So New Zealand's overall emissions, as we you know, report them to the United Nations each year, they won't have dropped by anything like 41%. On the other hand, carbon dioxide is the gas that sticks around in the atmosphere basically forever. Once it's out there, unless a, a tree or the ocean is kind enough to suck it back in for us, it continues to heat the planets for the planet, just the one, for many, many human lifetimes. So, you know, even just looking at carbon dioxide is extremely important. And of course, for most industrial countries, that is the biggest part of their emissions profile. So that's one reason why New Zealand's drop looked particularly big. But also, we're quite unusual in the sense that our electricity generation is 80% renewable and our road transport is a huge part of our emissions profile. We own a lot of vehicles per person. We own old and efficient vehicles and we drive a lot um, compared to people in other countries. So when you saw this thing happen where everyone stayed home, everyone perhaps used more electricity at their houses, but they didn't get in their cars, that was a bigger deal for us than it would have been for a lot of other nations in terms of our emissions. This sounds good. Not every country managed to reduce their emissions quite as much as New Zealand, but everyone reduced them a bit. So is that it? Climate change is fixed. We can all go home. 
Absolutely. Yep, no problem at all. We're going to scrap Paris. No, unfortunately, uh, that is not the case. It's been valuable, I guess, in the sense that we've seen what can happen. We've seen that emissions can plunge. But of course, locking people in their houses and shutting down economies, causing massive job losses around the world, all on the back of a disease that's caused untold deaths and suffering is not a long-term solution to the climate problem. So I guess the question now is, are there some of these changes that we could carry over into a life where we do still get to go to work if we need to, we get to take our kids to school, we get to socialise, we get to live, but still with lower emissions than what we'd normally have? Excellent question. What's the answer? Well, I think for New Zealand, we saw a lot more uh, what transport planners like to call active transport. So we saw people out using the roads. There wasn't a lot of car traffic around, so it was safe for kids to get out on their bikes. Um, People walked for miles. I know I walked around the neighbourhood with the kids a lot. And people discovered that they could get a lot done over Zoom. I mean, we're doing this podcast over Zoom right now. People discovered that maybe they don't need to go to the office every day. Maybe they don't need to fly to every single physical conference or physical meeting. So I hate the word learnings. I think there were some learnings um, from, uh, you know, the way that you can live without using your car every day. But I think it probably also taught us where some of the gaps are. Um, Because now that the cars are back on the roads, of course, a lot of us don't have good linkages to walking or cycling. We don't have an easy way to get to fast, convenient public transport. You know, there are a lot of essential workers, we've discovered, who need to work through every crisis and who need to physically get to their workplaces. So it probably taught us where some of the investment could be focused to make a low-carbon lifestyle easier for people. Just a top tip for you, uh, if you're concerned by the word learnings, there is the old word lesson. So um, (laughs) next time you're on a podcast, you can just say lesson instead. Thanks for that lesson, Adam. I appreciate it. I've got a friend who gets very angry when he hears the word learnings, and I wouldn't like to have him be angry at at me and by extension at you. Anyway, um, so flipping that, what have we learned from the COVID shutdowns that will tell us how not to approach climate change mitigation, do you think? Hmm. I think that the fear with reducing emissions and decarbonising economies has always been taking an economic hit, you know, that yes, we would avert untold suffering from climate change, but in the meantime, we would cause some suffering from the economic damage that would happen. And I think this has really highlighted how we do need to unhitch those two things from each other. We need to have a planned transition to decarbonisation because when you have an unplanned transition where somebody just turns off the tap and everything stops, that in itself is not pleasant um, for people. And so this has been, I guess, an opportunity to, to start planning the transition better. And also, I guess, to not rebuild the same way, right? Like we're spending a lot of money now to stimulate the economy and to get people's lives back on track. And that is a a restart. There is an opportunity to rebuild differently and to use some of this massive amounts of money, massive amounts of debt that we're going into to get on a different path to the one we were on before, which we all know was pretty hard to get off. In New Zealand, there are some people who have already been trying to find a way to go low carbon without ripping the guts out of the economy. Eh? Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
So there's been some interesting modelling um, come out about Auckland recently. And look, to those many, many listeners who don't live in Auckland, Auckland's problems are relevant to everyone, really, because they are such a large chunk of New Zealand's transport emissions. There is a campaigner called Paul Winton who commissioned some modelling. And what they found was that we need more of everything. So it's tempting to think, oh, we could all just buy EVs and our problems would be solved. But what has modelling shows is that even with the city rail link, even with two lots of light rail, even if we were to expand the bus fleet and electrify it and to get a bunch of people to buy EVs and to increase walking and cycling, we're not going to get to our decarbonisation goals in time. So that was kind of interesting as a demonstration of the scale of what we need to do. So he's proposing um, turning quite a bit of the existing tarmac that we have over to walking and cycling, um, which can be done pretty cheaply. I mean, we saw during lockdown, you just put up cones. Like, <laughs> it's pretty ugly, but it, it did work. Um, so as an interim measure, people like Paul are saying, why don't we just give that a try? And just to be clear, he's not saying if we all just exercised a bit more, everything would be fine. He's saying we also need to get as many EVs as Norway. We need to get as many cycling paths as Copenhagen. We need to uh, have a, a public transport system that's, you know, starting to rival Melbourne's. So a lot to look forward to. I mean, it would be a great city if we could do all of that, but of course, incredibly costly. So is there anything this whole experience can teach us about the sociology or the psychology of changing habits? I've been interviewing, you know, transport researchers and emissions researchers around the country for a story I'm doing about the future of transport. And that is exactly what they're saying. They're saying there's a difference about knowing the statistics and about being hammered with all of these facts and figures about climate change and actually feeling it, actually stepping outside your door and seeing what a different city is like, seeing what it's like when you don't go to the office every day. And they say that that experience is incredibly powerful. Paul Winton himself talks about how he went into this thinking, yep, EVs are going to solve everything. And the more he learned, the more he realised that wasn't the case. But he didn't really feel it until he was sitting in a cafe. He could hear the birds tweeting outside. There, were, there weren't cars on the road. And he thought, you know what, my five-year-old could get on the road and not die. Mm. And that <laughs> that was quite a powerful thing, more powerful than all the modelling that he'd done up until that point. When it comes to COVID-19, New Zealand has become something of a role model. So it's a country that acted fast, where the people were compliant largely, and, and a threat was faced down. And fingers crossed, second wave permitting, you know, we've done well. So does that perhaps mean we have a responsibility to make use of that and show we can be a role model around climate change too? I don't know ban petrol car imports tomorrow rather than in, in a decade. Is this time to make some enormously radical changes? We've got $20 billion of post-COVID loot sitting in the budget ready to spend. Should we do something clever with that? A lot of the spending that was announced in the early stages of COVID has not necessarily been the climate-friendly stimulus that people who are concerned about climate change would want to see. But we do still have this $20 billion in the pot. So 
there's a lot of talking now about what we do with that. We've seen the Climate Change Commission come out and say there needs to be a climate change lens applied to the spending because essentially if we spend this money in a way that locks us into the old ways of doing things, there's no way that we can get to net zero carbon by 2050. There's a huge uh, conversation happening now about how we spend that money. And interestingly, uh, our Climate Change Minister, James Shaw, in a, a slightly left field move, has released a podcast earlier today. He spent some of his time during lockdown interviewing, I guess, what you might call progressive thinkers. So people like uh, Donut Economics author Kate Raworth, Joseph Stiglitz, The Economist, talking to them about how to make a Green New Deal happen, basically. Uh, It's quite interesting to think about who he's trying to persuade here. Like, is it his cabinet colleagues? Is it voters? I asked him about that and he said that he's trying to persuade people who think that a green recovery is a good idea but are worried about whether it can be done in a way that keeps people's well-being high, you know, keeps growth, keeps economic activity, keeps people in jobs and warm homes and all of the things that are important to us. Not all of the $20 billion is going to be spent by this government. So it'd be very, very interesting to see how that goes over the next year. Indeed. Good to see that some of our politicians have been using their lockdown time fruitfully. Anyway, Eloise Gibson, thank you very much for coming on to our podcast. I'm now rethinking my plan for the next couple of days. Perhaps I should be pumping up my bike tyres rather than refilling my petrol tank, but we'll see how that goes. Thank you very much. Thanks, Adam and Eugene. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Tuesday the 26th of May. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Susan Edmonds, Eloise Gibson, Alex Liu, Catherine George, John Harderfeld, Carol Hirschfeld and star reporter Eugene Bingham. Gosh, you're getting through that very quickly there, Adam. You can find us on all the podcast platforms and if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Is that fast enough? If you want to support Stuff's journalism by making a financial contribution, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. Just quickly, though, we're glad to see that one listener, a Sinead Boucher of Wellington, took up our invitation for someone to buy the whole company. Thanks, boss. We'll be back on Thursday. Cool, Val. Cool, Val.